good morning. We, over these next few weeks, as Peter's already said, are going to look at this theme. He never said, things that Jesus never said, yet have become a really popular part of our culture. The family that prays together stays together. We're not going to be talking about that, but how many times have you heard that? And is that true? I know endless families who pray together and not stay together. You could claim that the family that laughs together is more likely to stay together than the family that prays together regularly. Um, the family that does a quiet time every day, that gets their kids to read the Bible, those kids will have faith. Um, the truth is, we all know that that doesn't work like that. Uh, with our four kids, Corny and I, we never got them to read the Bible in the morning. We never, got, we never sat around the breakfast table praying. We sometimes did when there was a crisis on. Everybody prays when they're in trouble, don't they? That's the one thing you can bank on. But actually, um, the truth is that you catch faith in lots of other ways. This morning, we're going to begin by looking at this saying, there's no room for doubt. It's a problem, isn't it? Especially if you're a church leader. If you're a church leader, like me, every Sunday morning, you've got to stand up at the front and you've got to be bouncy. You've got to believe that Jesus is alive. You've got to believe that life's worth living. You've got to believe with every step you take, that uh, the world is headed towards an extraordinary conclusion when Jesus Christ returns and he will reign forever. Isn't it incredible that for church leaders, they can never be depressed at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning? (laughs) Every church leader is employed to be full of confidence and full of faith Every single Sunday morning, without doubt, whatever happens, whatever stage of life, whatever's going on during the week before, they have to be full of faith at that moment. Of course, the truth is that none of us lives like that. Not me, no one. We all struggle with life. We all have questions. That's why we belong to families and communities, actually. It's in family and community that we find one another and we find strength. We can't carry ourselves through life. The myth of independent living where you can be a superhero um, in charge of your own destiny with no help from anyone else is exactly that. It's a shallow myth that's proven not to be true by the reality of life. We need one another. We need to lean on one another. The problem is this. Even in Jesus' words, in the story that Flick just read to us, um, Jesus says to Thomas, and we're going to return to this, stop doubting and believe. Christians are supposed to stop doubting and believe. And if we start doubting, if the Teflon covering of our evangelical faith falls to the floor for one minute and we begin to ask questions we're not supposed to ask, We have to keep them very quiet because you can be thrown out of churches for those things. Somebody wants to ask me a question. We are going to talk about exactly that as uh, as we head through. It's really clear, isn't it, that huge numbers of Christians see any serious doubt of any kind as antithetical to faith. True Christians shouldn't have misgivings. 
So when you look at a Bible verse and you wonder whether it's really true, when you wonder to yourself, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Was Jesus really born of a virgin? Was Mary really a virgin? Do other people of other faiths really have to come to Jesus to find any hope at all? When you begin to ask those kind of questions... You have to keep them quiet. And the truth is that everybody who's alive asks those kind of questions all of the time. Over the years, I've got to know Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is an extraordinary person because, as you know, he's probably the best-known atheist in Britain. But when I've sat and talked to him, I had the chance to do so, I've discovered from Richard that he doubts his faith too. Because whenever you have faith, doubt is part of it. It's not something apart from it. It's really interesting that Richard Dawkins' son has become a very committed Christian. Every Christian's dead scared that their son's going to become an atheist. Richard had the opposite fear and it was fulfilled. (laughs) Just the way things go. So the question is, is doubt a no-go area for Christians? Has our faith left us the moment we feel the twinge of uncertainty or struggle to accept some difficult doctrine that just doesn't fit easily with us? When you get that idea in your head, does God exist? Is Dawkins right? Are we alone in a universe with no meaning at all? When you get that doubt in your head... Is that okay? Or is that something you have to push away quickly because Jesus said to Thomas, have faith and do not doubt. The problem is the church, and especially the evangelical church actually, is made up of what I I call party people. We easily divide the world into those who are for us and against us. And we expect our adherents and especially our spokespeople, to be ideologically pure at all times. I, of course, have um, got into a lot of trouble for not being ideologically pure. I have lost friends, endless friends. For my support, actually, of some of you here, I do not have platforms that are open to me and people that I've known for years never ring me, never speak to me. Though they speak about me, I discover all of the time. We tend to be people who draw lines really quickly, in or out. If we reach a place in our life where our views change, it's easy to believe and be told that we've sold out. In our kind of circles, going liberal is really bad. Going liberal means she's gone woolly. She's gone woolly. He's gone wishy-washy. Wishy-washy, liberal, woolly. Oh no, how could you be like that? Life is black and white. It's not shades of grey. And by the way, we don't approve of that book or film either. Life is about black and white, in or out. It's about certainty. And faith is about certainty. There is no room for doubt. 
A friend of mine, Joel Edwards, said about evangelicalism this. He used to be uh, the boss of the Evangelical Alliance. So, um, you okay there, Marianne? He said this. Our problem is we're only interested in having a conversation if we already know the answers in advance. I used to talk lots to Joel about this, who's a fantastic man. We're only interested in ever having the conversation if we already know the answers in advance. A few years ago, I read um, a long article by a Jehovah Witness in uh, the Times. And it was about their journey out of um, their little kingdom hall, their local uh, Jehovah Witness hall. They left the movement altogether. And at the end, they said this. In a nutshell, the reason I left uh, the kingdom hall was this. I could no longer live life with questions I couldn't ask. I'd rather live life with questions I couldn't answer than questions I wasn't allowed to ask. We must be a community that can ask questions and explore doubts together. It turns out, of course, that faith isn't certainty at all. Faith is faith, not fact. I have chosen through my life to live with Christian faith. It's a place that I've come to in faith. I became a Christian when I was 14 many years ago now. I've spent, I can tell you this, every single day of my life since that evening, a Friday evening, I became a Christian in South London, struggling with how to work out my faith, how to live for Jesus, how to build churches, how to create mission, how to create inclusion in Jesus' name. I can honestly tell you this, there hasn't been a day of my life when I've not thought about those things or worked for those things. So therefore, I'm bound to spend my life exploring all of the issues, perhaps far more so than someone who's casual about their faith. Because I take faith seriously, I have had to plumb the depths of doubt. And anyone who puts their faith at the forefront of their lives, whose Christian faith drives them, is bound to ask endless questions, probably at a deeper level than others. So it turns out that the person who doubts is often the person who's done the hard graft and work rather than living superficially with every line that got fed to them by every vicar or guy with a guitar and a tattoo that ever stood in front of them. That is our task. The problem is, for some of us here, for some of us, the term evangelical doesn't mean much, and for some of us, it means a lot. And the problem is that people are worried about moving away from evangelical certainties because being ex-evangelical means being ex-Christian. But the truth is, I am an evangelical I'm an evangelical because I believe in bringing good news. The term evangel was first used in the New Testament. It just means good news bringer. The term evangelical isn't used there at all. It's 
probably about 150, 200 years old, but it should mean the bringer of good news to everyone. The question is, what is that good news? Where there's absolute certainty, there's no room for faith. Faith is built as we struggle with our doubts and we work them through. When I first became a Christian when I was 14, I believed everything that the guy up the front of my church told me. When I was 16, when I was 18, when I was 24, when I was 25, when I was 30 and I had kids and I was living and I had a little or no income but had given my life to building what was to become Oasis, I asked deep questions. Am I treading the right road? Is this the right way to go? What's going to be the impact on my kids? What's going to be the impact on my wife and my life? What am I doing with my life? Do I really believe in this? So it turns out that the journey of faith is bound to bring you to questioning. It's the journey of superficiality that keeps the questioning out of the way. The problem is that we too often send a message to people that says shape up or ship out. And occasionally we even enforce this by making people ship out if they have versions of the truth or questions with which we disagree. But what about those souls who refuse to settle in the halfway houses of cosy reassurance that so much superficial faith is about? And all the bland sentiments that are thrown out in songs very often and sermons equally often that just don't measure up to the reality of the way we live our lives. Huge numbers, actually, of um, what we call liberals are refugee fundamentalists. I'm sure you know that. Because, have you noticed, um, as I've travelled the world uh, speaking, I'm constantly told, you know, when you go to the States, uh, for instance, I I remember being told, we get get a thousand new people make a first time commitment to Jesus every month in this church. I've been told that. And you think, well then, since you've been here for the last 20 years... And there's only 500 people in the congregation. What's been happening to them? The truth is that we often have a revolving door, don't we? The Christianity on display seems wonderful to people as they begin to enter the community of faith. But as they journey through it and face the questions of life and ask, how does this faith relate to those big questions? Actually, people vote with their feet and they opt Uh, back out again we're not dealing good at dealing with mess it's like Joel Edwards says we're only interested in a conversation as long as we know the answers already now of course there is great strength in certainty isn't there the danger with a kind of woolly-washy liberalism, as it gets called, is that it can get so diluted that nobody has any sense of mission or purpose or drive. But the problem is also that this certainty, if our certainty is a strength against that kind of problem, the problem is also that the certainty that we seem to exude can actually reach a place where 
people who think don't feel they fit in anymore. I was talking to a girl who um, started a youth group in her, in her church. She actually started it. She's really kind of fantastic personality. She's 19 now. I met her when she was 17. And she'd started this youth group in her church, which only ever had elderly people in, because she was um, so enthusiastic about her faith. And being so enthusiastic about her faith, she did A-level RE, and now she's at university doing theology, just finished the first year. But when she goes back to the very group that she started, she she told me, now nobody wants to hear what I'm saying. The very fact that I took my faith seriously enough to do A-level at RE and then went on to start theology at college means that I've been confronted with huge questions. And she told me, and we sat and had a coffee, she said, she said, I'm still as passionate as ever about Jesus. I really am. I'm more passionate about him because I've worked through some of the questions. But when I bring those questions to my youth group, even the leaders shut me down. I'm no longer welcome because I ask questions. We need a form of Christianity that's open to debate in this fast-moving world that Jerry talked about. We need a form of Christianity that responds to the needs and the issues and the moral dilemmas, the ethical dilemmas around us and constantly rethinks itself. Not moving away from a commitment to Christ but seeing the world through the lens of Jesus and being stirred up in our faith. As, as we go, there's a famous story that's told. One or two of you may have heard me tell it before, but I tell it again because it's brilliant. It's not mine. It's written by Dostoevsky, who, um, who wrote that great novel, uh, The Brothers Karamazov, that uh, I'm sure you've not read. Perhaps one person here has read, and I'm not recommending to you that try, you try to read it now. But if you, uh, if you do, if you're going on a very long holiday and you love reading books that are novels but are really works of philosophy, you, yeah, I recommend it to you. Um, the Brothers Karamazov. And uh, there are three brothers uh, in The Brothers Karamazov, which is a very long book. And these three brothers get torn apart because uh, they all feel guilty after their father is murdered. That's the plot. Their father's murdered and it separates them and it tears them apart. And in the middle of the book, there's a, there's a chapter uh, which is called The Grand Inquisitor. And the chapter itself is so long that it's sometimes published as a separate book. So if you're going to read any Dostoevsky, I recommend you the, the, uh, the Grand Inquisitor, which is this chapter. And in this chapter, one of the brothers, Ivan, who's an atheist, one is a Christian, one, uh, the, the three brothers, one becomes a Christian, one is agnostic, and one's an atheist. And Ivan, the atheist brother, explains to his other uh, two brothers a dream that he's had. And this is his dream. In his dream, he's seen Jesus return to the city of Seville. Uh, Jesus returns in the 1600s to the city of Seville and Ivan makes it clear to his brothers this isn't the second coming, this isn't Jesus coming back. But he's returned to the city of Seville in the midst of the um, Inquisition, the period in which the church in Spain was torturing people into faith. As you know, that uh, was a terrible phase of the church's history. And um, Jesus 
having arrived in Brazil, makes his way on foot to Seville Cathedral. The Grand Inquisitor, the man in charge of the Inquisition, the Cardinal, is waiting for him. He's a 90-year-old man. And as Jesus enters the cathedral, the Cardinal has Jesus arrested and thrown into prison. And then the Cardinal, in the dream, Ivan's dream, the Cardinal goes to see Jesus in this prison cell. And the Cardinal stands in front of him and tells him that in the morning he will be burnt at the stake. Jesus stands in front of him and says nothing. The cardinal gets fidgety. He's just ordered the execution of Jesus for the second time. And as Jesus looks at him, he feels that he has to give some explanation. So he explains this. He says, Jesus... Your whole way of doing life jeopardizes the Christian faith. And Jesus says nothing. So he feels he's got to explain why. So he says, you see, Jesus, what you never understood is ordinary human beings can't live with uncertainty and doubt. They need black and white. They're not intelligent enough, he says, to cope with grey. You gave them too much grey. And the church, these last 1600 years, has been correcting the mistake you made. You gave people choice. We tell them truth. Jesus still says nothing. I tell you, the Grand Inquisitor says, I'll quote this. I tell you, this is from the book, humans are pathetic creatures with no more urgent need than to find someone to whom they can surrender the gift of their freedom that they were born with. This is because you failed to understand all of this the first time. By refusing to give in to the temptations in the wilderness or come down from the cross, the actions that would have proved your power and identity beyond all doubt, you've saddled people with the crippling burden of having to think for themselves. And they can't do it. Jesus still says nothing. So the Grand Inquisitor says this, We've corrected your mighty achievement, he boasts. They'll accept now whatever we tell them with joy because they've been spared the anguish and torment of having to make their own free and independent choices. And then he adds, and that's why we have to burn you at the stake tomorrow morning. It's an extraordinary story, isn't it? And it's a critique on the church. Jesus, however, always gave room for doubt. Flick read this story. And in this story, Jesus says to Thomas, the doubting disciple who doesn't think Jesus has risen from the dead, put your finger here and see my hands. 
see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Jesus' side is scarred because of his crucifixion. He has holes in his hand. Put your finger here. See my hands. Believe, don't doubt. And some people have read that harshly and said, Jesus is saying to Thomas, believe, don't doubt. But he's not. He's saying, explore your doubts. Explore your doubt. He's literally being allowed to explore his doubt in a way that some of us will find, oh, really quite off-putting. Jesus is saying, actually put your finger into the hole in my hand. Put your hand into the hole in my side. Take time, Thomas. Explore your doubts. You don't have to believe I'm not pushing you. I'm not bludgeoning you. I'm not coercing you. I'm not bullying you. Explore your doubt. And as you explore your doubt, come to the place where you truly believe. Take your time to come to this. Francis Bacon said this, if a man, or I suppose a woman, will begin with certainties, he or she will end in doubts. But if they be content to begin with doubts, they shall end in certainties. Life's like that, isn't it? Have you noticed how people who often become Christians are so right about everything and have no time for anybody who sees anything the other way? If you begin with certainties, you will end in doubts. I know you will. I meet people like that all the time. They had the whole world sewn up. They knew the answers to everything. And then life hits them. It hits them hard. I sat at a a dinner yesterday uh, with a lovely lady who loved her husband dearly. And he was killed in a helicopter crash. I sat and listened to her story. I'd never met her uh, uh, until yesterday afternoon. I sat and listened to her story. And her story was all about how all the certainties she clung to and knew and preached to everyone fell apart in that moment. And it's taken her 20 years to move to a different place. But I said to her, you're stronger, you're better. Not because that tragedy was something that God did to her to teach her how to be strong. It was a terrible, 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 awful tragedy. But through that, she learned faith instead of certainty. The truth is this. Jesus always invites but never compels us to believe. Faith is a risky business. I've spent my life living for Christ. It's a risky business. It's not something I always feel certainty about, but it's something I'm utterly, utterly committed to. In my darkest moments, when I sit with myself and there's no one there, I say to myself, in my strongest moments, in my most logical moments, I've thought this through and come to this place. I've put my finger into Jesus' hand. I've tested it out. I've tested my doubts. I've reached the place where this is my belief. And this is what I'm committed to. Jesus always invites you, but he never compels you to faith. He will not twist your arm. He will not shut down the question. He will not say to you, you can't ask that. 
He always leaves us in the place where we can explore. Let's pause. Let's pray for a moment. Let's bring our faith and our doubts to Christ. And if you choose, in that, commit yourself to serve him with your life. Let's pray. If a man begins with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. Lord, in our doubt, be with us. In our fears, walk with us. We choose to walk your way. We choose to live for you. We choose to give ourselves to you. This is our commitment. Amen. You may know that Thomas, we use that expression in English, don't we? Doubting Thomas because of Thomas's doubts. Thomas went on to found the church in India and across Asia. And I always think that so many Christian leaders, when Thomas said, I don't believe, would have said, there's the door, get out. But Jesus said, no, put your finger into the hole in my hand, explore your doubt, take your time. And through that gentle encouragement and then those words, Thomas, doubt no more. You've explored the doubt now. You've thought, thought it through. Doubt no more. Have faith. Thomas goes and he becomes a great Christian leader because he's given that room. In our conversations, in our small groups, in our families, with your friends, find space to explore your doubts because that produces the depth of faith that does change the world. God bless you.